All right, everybody, welcome to a very Sunday special episode of This Uncanny Earth. As always, I'm your host, Robert Solomon, and you'll be joining me for two hours today. Uh, Spiderless, he is not here today, which um, that's because it's Sunday and he's never around until Thursday. But in his place, I have a good friend of mine, a uh, producer, creator, uh, mastermind of all things, and makes miniatures and does everything. I think he's I really. I think he's really a robotic brain. I've never seen him physically in person, so I think he's actually uh, uh, just a robot brain inside of a gigantic computer mechanism. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Kenny Vigu. Welcome, Kenny. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I am an AI. It's true. Yeah, because I mean it, it. And here's some applause for you. You won't be able to hear it, but everybody listening will be able to hear it. So. Um, but yeah, yeah, Kenny's a kind of a jack of all trades. He's uh, kind of our helmsman over at the Chad Fallout 76 story uh, that you can search up. And I'm sure Kenny will bless us with that link at the end of our show today. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Fallout like we were last time. Uh, we're here to talk about his paranormal experiences because he told me that he has had a bevy of paranormal experiences. And he also... Uh, was involved in a movie I seen back in 2002, back when I was young, before my bones and back started hurting. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, with uh, David Caruso. Yeah, yeah. Um, the old Denver Danvers Asylum. And you know what? Let's go ahead and get into it. Why don't you tell the the fine folks out there about the movie that you had produced? I think you were the producer on that one, right? Oh no no no! I was just a production assistant. Ah, uh, my my. I was one of those lowly people that would uh, go serve as gophers. <laughs> Rats! I told all my friends you were the producer of this huge Hollywood movie, and oh, uh, now I'm not gonna <laughs> no, have any friends. No, <laughs> no it was um, at the time uh, a friend and I had been doing some really weird work. There's. <laughs> There's a very, very underground horror film that if you look it up, you'll find it called God of Vampires. And uh, in my my early 20s, uh, my friend Kurt and I had dabbled around in creative filmmaking, but had no resources to get it done ourselves. So we'd met this guy, Rob Fitz, uh, who's a makeup artist by trade. He's worked on a couple of uh, fairly well-known movies. But he had written a script called God of Vampires, which is this uh, Asian horror movie uh about asian vampires takes place in chinatown boston um it was very low budget but it was a cool experience working on it uh and through him we'd met a couple of other people we ended up checking out the danvers asylum underground um doing some stuff on the film uh checking out stuff in the tunnels um the god of vampires movie i don't think too far you can still find it out there it's, it has kind of a cult following uh but working on that film was was really interesting we ended up getting into a lot of abandoned buildings that we got access to through rob just to kind of check out and explore um an old uh textile building in downtown haverhill that we had used uh that was filled with amazing antiques i guess the guy who owned the building uh, had bought it and then it just was using it as surplus storage for his antiques business. So that was kind of a cool place to explore. My friend Kurt and I had done a couple of comedy shorts 
in there. Um, but yeah, the movie with David Caruso was, was kind of cool. The Danvers Asylum itself is one of the most unique places I've ever been to. Um, unfortunately, it's it's no longer there what it once was. Now it's, you know, upscale condos for for Boston uh, pencil pushers and hedge fund managers. Um, but back then, it, it was... Uh, really the original Kirkbride design um, that had been really run down. They had a, a big problem for a long time with a lot of break-ins. Um, one of the most interesting things about it in the movie is mirrored in real life. When the place was shut down with Reaganomics in the 80s, um, the large-scale uh, state-run mental health facilities in the country were pretty much shut down overnight uh, in Danvers in particular, when they took uh, shut down everything, they put all of the people who weren't incredibly dangerous, just loaded them up on buses and then just kind of dropped them off in towns with really no support. They kind of became um, just homeless people suffering from a variety of mental health issues. And some of them ended up going back to Danvers and breaking in and, and living there uh, in the building and tunnels in kind of this sad poetic way where a lot of them had spent so much time there. It was like their home. Um, when we were exploring one of the tunnels underneath the complex that connects the buildings, <laughs> we were just kind of wandering through the security guard was with us kind of telling us these stories. Um, and as we rounded a corner in the middle of the tunnel, was just someone standing there. So <laughs> I was having those, one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose my bowel control and <laughs> just die or run one of the two or all at once. Um, it was just this woman with really straggly hair, just standing there, just staring off into darkness, not sitting or anything uh, in like this really ratty looking coat. Uh, that looked almost like like a patient gown. I don't know if she'd found it and it just built up on layers. But as we all stopped and she just kind of kept staring there and the security guard just suggested we turn around and go back and leave her alone. Um, for whatever reason, they weren't really busting those people too much. But she just kind of slowly turned around in one of those creepy horror movie cliches. <laughs> yeah. We got the hell out of there. Now it was. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, it was just uh, that when when you shut down a place like that, um, it's amazing as you're walking through patient records, books, uh, furniture, like everything is still there. You you go in filing cabinets and there are still patients' records in there that are just people's life stories and. It's just stuff that was just left and abandoned, wasn't even destroyed, which is kind of mind-blowing, but sad in a way. Um, like in some of the administrative offices, books were still on bookshelves. Um, nobody bothered to take them or collect them. It's just kind of weird wandering into a place that large and people just left one day, kind of left everything there and nobody came to reclaim it or sell it or... 
it's kind of like a place frozen in time or limbo. It was very creepy. Now, what I have noticed with a lot of um, mental institutions, because I've been to a couple myself uh, as, as legally touring. or right, illegal. right, right. <laughs> well, see, the Mothman voice is a voice I do all the time, but for this interview and for how you know me, I'm just like this, nice and calm and collected. But as soon as the mic goes off, I go crazy. So yeah, yeah. Change my name and everything, so they'll never find me. I mean, that <laughs> mental institution closed years ago. No, um, the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I went there back, oh, yeah. in, back a year ago, actually. It's been a year, and you see like just how big these facilities are, how costly they were to run them um, back then. Uh, when it was in its like one of its hate when it, when it, when it was in its heyday, you could lock your wife up if she got on your nerves. If she started nagging you to death, you could just be like, okay, get in the car, and you could take her to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum and drop her off, drop off kids, all that. Yeah, even if, if you were a lady who liked sex maybe a little too much or were a little open about it, you could be locked up for that. It's mm-hmm. just complete insanity. Kids, if they, if they were bad enough and they the, the parents just didn't want them anymore and they were just at a point where, hey, you know, you got to go drop them off. And then they had a whole TB wards, and um, there was a, a place for the criminally insane, which is the only part that I really wanted to go to more than anything else, because just how it would have felt to be in that in that part of the uh, the mental institution. Because it's you have to go outside; it's not in the main. Because when you pull up to the front, it looks like one of those old or like one of the horror movies where there's that huge castle, like uh, the haunting. And they pull up, and it's like, oh, that thing's you. It looks like that. It looks like the old castle. Um, <clears throat> but you have to go, like, kind of on the side, and then you go out, and then you go in. But because of the rain, they wouldn't let you go in. And that was, I was like, oh, that's the place I really wanted to go to. But so next time, say that one for next time. And here in Ohio, um, we have the Ohio State Penitentiary. So it's in Mansfield, which would be south of where I'm at now. And it was kind of like a prison, but it was also, they had some mental patients because back in the day, if you were crazy, they didn't really lock you up in the mental, at the mental asylum. Cause there wasn't really around in that area of Ohio at the time. So they would yep. lock people in the prison. Um, and it was just, it was crazy. And that was back in the, I want to say the 18, late 1800s, I believe, because they all based the old prisons on that sort of castle looking style. Yeah, the, it was the, the Kirkbride design was one that was mirrored really across the country. And when it was first developed um, post-Civil War, when really the, the asylum business uh, or movement was really taking shape, it, it was grounded in a lot of really positive principles. Even Danvers, before it, it became just a, a nightmarish place by the time the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, you came to, it was developed around concepts of light, uh, being able to put people in natural environments. The buildings were designed to really maximize just sunlight with solariums. Um, They would get patients working outside, working in gardens and fields, and they would put it up on um, a high hill or a place that was really beautifully wooded. So you would take people that are struggling mentally and put them in environments surrounding them with light and positive energy and nature and all of these things with the idea that it would it would help them. A lot of the programs that we had 
that they had back then were really progressive. The problem with all of those places came down to overcrowding. Like you said, when when you could put anyone, just check them in right. for the flimsiest of reasons. If you know, if you got irritated with a relative or decided <laughs> you want to get get rid of your wife, so you could go bang your secretary. Uh, you could just do that, and right. so they became bloated and overcrowded. Um, and those programs broke down, and the systems kind of imploded on themselves. Like American Horror Story, uh, the one that they did in the asylum is a perfect example of of what happens to a place when it just gets mired in darkness and negativity and the staff uh, don't really care about people anymore and start, stop looking at them as human beings. And that's, that's 100% accurate because that's what they really wanted to do with the, with with the grand design of it was make it to where people had sunlight all the time. Cause a lot of times you would also have, TB patients in some of these places, and so yep. they felt the sunlight was good for them, you know, to kind of breathe that in and and help them. And then they would have people on the lawn, and a lot of kind of sports were played um, with the patients, and it was a lot healthier. I mean, it was good for the for for a lot of those folks who were mentally ill, and it helped them out a lot. And then when when all the mental institutions were closed and they were kicked back onto the streets, they started lumping in mental diseases with crime, and they would they would just put the two together. And the prison system, you know, obviously this isn't a show for us to discuss the criminal justice reform, but the prison system isn't a good place to put a person who's mentally ill. Now, no. there is a difference between someone who, who does have some mental issues and somebody that's just a heartless human being. You know, and we see that. We see that every we see that in court cases all the time. Oh, I was criminally insane, but you weren't because you plotted it out. You were a year back we have phone records we have emails we have you premeditating this whole thing so no that's not going to work and i think the the like you said having like being able to put your relatives in and i know we've all wanted to put our relatives in a in a mental institution i've wanted to put some of my relatives they probably wouldn't put me there <laughs> but <clears throat> but miring it in with a bunch of uh people that that are just you know everyday folks with a proclivity for you know, maybe you drink too much, you know, go get some help from, you know, from, from Alcoholics Anonymous or, I mean, I'm, at that time you really couldn't, but, you know, go to your local church. I know a lot of times the the older churches will try to help folks get off the alcohol and, I mean, just put people in there for that reason instead of folks that actually had uh, mental issues. There was kids, they, they were talking about kids at, uh, at the trans Allegheny that had uh, severe mental problems because some were beat or sexually abused and so you know they would put them there as wards of the state um because that was another thing they did you know they didn't have uh the 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 relatives to come and pick them up i mean they had the foster homes too and that's a whole nother story but a lot of the time wards of the state would go there until they were 18 and then they would let them out at 18 and they have no idea how the real world works they haven't been in it they were kids when they went in and all they see is this these these crazy folks because at the time they would let people intermingle you know people would i mean unless you were criminally insane and they had a whole different like i said a whole different spot for them and they would keep them locked in that area but you know there's four floors there and so some of the, some deranged folks would be just mingling in with 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 uh with you know people that have mental issues but they aren't criminally mental issues um, right. They talked about a guy. They had him upstairs, <clears throat> and he he was 
he was of the the mental i think he was like a bipolar kind of schizophrenic um person and the one guy he was criminally insane and they because they would what they would do is the guys who were criminally insane some of them were smart enough to be able to stay in that kind of safer environment than you know going over to the other wing and so what they did was they took the guy and they put his head down and they put a, the the bed, the steel bed post on his temple and started jumping on the bed. And it's it's crazy. The room where, they, where she talked about it, you could kind of feel like, man, something bad things happen here. You know, I don't know that that might just be because of the asbestos, but yeah. <laughs> which actually was the whole. Uh... Which was the whole point of the the movie there, session nine. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's worth a watch. Um, I think there was a, a trend more recently in any movie that's set in asylum just has to be this ridiculous, over the top kind of horror film. This one is more psychological than it is horror. Uh, on top of the fact that the um, the director uh, Brad Anderson. The visuals in that film are really beautiful, capturing the the entropy and just the the desolation of the place, but also the architectural beauty um, of those kind of asylum buildings. They're really striking um, when you get a chance to to go in and check them out uh, safe safely, of course. Right, um, and yeah, I've seen this movie. Years and years ago, who knew that that our fates would be intertwined after I've seen them? No, um, but the movie itself, I don't really remember much of it because, like I said, I haven't seen it in almost twenty years, actually. But uh, I did. I definitely plan on finding a copy and watching it again for sure. But from what I remember, it was pretty good. Like I said, it was it was just one of those movies at Giant Eagle, um, which is a grocery store. If you if you folks don't have that up there, because you're in Massachusetts, correct? New Hampshire, yeah, yeah. So they don't they don't have um, they don't have uh, giant eagles up there. I don't think it's like a Pennsylvania Ohio thing. Yeah, I've never uh, heard of it. Yeah, uh, so they had the movie at the video rental. Like they had a video, they had a spot where they rented videos, and um, and one one day I was there and I was like, oh, I'm gonna check this out, and I was I was impressed. You know, I, I remember it being a, a good movie for what it was, and it was just to me it was an independent horror movie. You know, they didn't really yeah. throw the word indie around all the time. Um, it was more like a B movie, which is yeah, what I, which I was considered at the time. But, I don't think it had much more than a, a little over a million dollar budget. Yeah, as opposed. To but you could actually, uh, in the early two thousands, you could get away with making a film that cheaply and still have it be decent. Right. I mean, today you got to have like eight hundred billion dollars just to you know blow something up. Look at Michael Bay. I mean, he makes hand over fist money with things like that, or did. I don't know if he's still uh, around much, but the uh, I remember getting it, watching it, and I'm like, that was pretty good. And then I think like six months later, the place went out of business. So they had a, not Giant Eagle itself, but like the video store. They were getting rid of it because the internet was slowly starting to blossom, like in terms of how you could watch movies and downloading and all that. And... I remember going up there to look for it. I was like, I'm, you know, because they had, I mean, the DVDs and the tapes they had were going for like a buck, two bucks a piece. And I was like, I'm going to see if it's up there. And it wasn't up there. I remember buying like a couple games, stuff like that. But um, it was interesting, uh, to say the least. And it's cool. Like, you told me, you're like, yeah, it's such an I'm like, oh, hey, I rented that movie from Giant Eagle 
back in 2002, back way back when. So that's cool that you were part of that. And it's, that's really interesting that, you know, I, I know somebody famous now. I can tell all my friends that I know, <laughs> that I know famous guy. No. Um, so I got David Caruso a sandwich. So that makes me <laughs> yeah, I know the guy that got David Caruso a sandwich. I know him. <laughs> really? Good friends. <laughs> we go way, way back. Uh, he so, said yeah. he would call me. I'm, I'm still waiting. <laughs> it's uh, what, 18, 20 years later. Uh, it's, it's like it's like a tea. Yeah. You just have to let it. You gotta let it stoop for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you were involved in this movie, and yeah. you're actually on location, which is cool because you know a lot of times in movies they're not really so much on location anymore. They just have like a green screen, like a green room, where they do a lot of the filming and, and such. But it's cool that you got to be in that asylum, and you and I noticed that with a lot of independent movies they'll go on site because it's cheaper than obviously having to do all these crazy special effects and, you know, you can actually film on location. And, uh, so what was it like just kind of walking through there? I mean, you talk about the patient records and I mean, when did the place close? Ooh, that's a, I think, uh, mid eighties, I want to say like 84, 85. And so I'd have to look it up. When did that movie release? Like 2002, 2000, uh, let me see. I was 21. So, yeah, like 2000, 2001, I think. Huh. So, what was the, you know, what was the feeling? You know, just walking through and seeing this piece of history, you know, and, and it had been closed for, for quite a while. Actually, let me see here. Um, I'm trying to figure out yeah. what was closed. Go ahead. I'm I'm, I'm looking up. Now, it was so. it was Reaganomics, so I think uh, the asylums that would have to be eighty four, eighty five. I want. No, actually, the entire that. campus was closed in nineteen ninety two. Um the 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 administration block closed in eighty nine. Okay, eighty nine. Yeah. They began closing wards and facilities as early as nineteen sixty nine, and then in eighty five, the majority of the original hospital wards were closed or abandoned. So, That's okay. So eighty five, yeah. A lot of those buildings had still operated, um, uh, like for Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, like some of those random programs. Even uh, some of the other asylums. There was one other one in Massachusetts, which uh, is it Northeastern State? I can't remember. Then there's another one that's south of Boston that we also shot a film at um, for the God of Vampires. We shot on location there, and that that was the same kind of thing. It shut down around that time, but. Some of the buildings were still operating for uh, like independent programs, uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous or substance abuse programs. Hmm. Yeah, and then they they pretty much demolished it. Um, it looks like too. I don't know if they demolished the whole property, but it's showing like the administration no. building was demolished. Yeah. yeah, they kept part of the complex that they they turned into more upscale condos, I believe. Um, but really, the whole facility was um turned really into condominiums which is it's kind of sad when you see um throughout most of my my teenage years and early 20s i spent a lot of time during urban exploration um breaking into places i probably shouldn't have uh taking chances i probably shouldn't have but um i did a lot of photography of those places it was always kind of 
drawn to them. I'm not sure why in the same way that a lot of people are, but they are beautiful examples of what happens to a place when life leaves it and things kind of revert back to nature fairly quickly, faster than you would think paint starts flaking off walls and, you know, tiles start bending up windows fall out of their, uh, fall out of their sashes. And this place just becomes forgotten. There's a, an energy and an almost melancholy to those kind of places that I've always think is kind of poetically beautiful. Um, one of the the most beautiful hotels in New Hampshire was like that. That's now been fully restored, but that place too was really run down and abandoned. Um, but you you break into these places and not to destroy, but just mm-hmm. to see and appreciate um, beautiful mantelpieces and chandeliers and books and chairs and all this stuff just left. And with a lot of those places, really, you just want to see them brought back to life and restored to, for life to return to it. And it's a shame in a lot of ways that some of these asylums just end up being demolished or destroyed as opposed to rehabbed in some way. Unfortunately, you run into the modern issue now of being able to renovate those kind of places is almost impossibly expensive because of the size of them with inflation. You can't really build buildings like that anymore, not with with brick and granite um, and have it be sustainable. Yeah, because you had had a lot of issues with heating, electricity, when they did have electricity. Um, Oh, yeah, everything was steam, massive steam boilers in those places. Yeah, there's a reason why a lot of the... The um, the prisons, when they tore some of the prisons down, they, what they would do is they built the dormitories. So instead of having individual cells, they would have straight dormitories so they could build just one floor and then they could build out and not up. So the heating would still be okay and, the, uh, and they could house all the inmates together, I mean, which obviously would still cause quite a commotion, but it was cheaper to build. And then everything was built different. Um, you also had a lot of the uh, a lot of the inmates that were actually in um, the Mansfield Reformatory that were doing life sentences and things like that. They would ship them over to uh, Lucasville, which is, sits right behind the, the old Mansfield Penitentiary, which is still there. It's still standing. It's more it's a historical exhibit, but you can just look out the window and see it. You know, because there's a part of the actual prison itself. That they say if you take any pictures, cameras, you take any, you know, you do any kind of photography here, we'll take your camera and you're going to be in trouble because they, uh, you can get the plans for the prison right there. You just take a couple pictures and send it to whoever to break whoever out so they don't let you film that. But like you said, it is a, it's a fascinating look into a past, a past that's never going to return. You know, you see the old, the old building, the way, because a lot of the mental institutions and prisons were built pretty much the same way. They were built in the same kind of castle, Kirkbride style buildings of just, you know. Uh, but it's never going to happen again. Because like you said, it's much cheaper to build it the way they do it now than to go through granite and brick and all that. Yeah, they, they just can't. And that's, in a way, that's kind of sad. What do What do you think they are 
meaning whatever's left behind. Do you think so, they're actual spirits or do you think it's something different? Because I have my own theory. No, see what I think it is. And I, I don't really know too many people that, that think like this. Cause a lot of folks and a lot of, a, a lot of friends of mine and folks that we've had on the show, they believe that it's the person, it's the spirit, which is fine. You know, that's not a knock to anybody who believes that, but me. So what I believe is when something happens, <clears throat> whether it be heinous or whether it be wonderful. So, Auschwitz, Andersonville, Mansfield, when any kind of death, sorrow on, on a massive scale like that, it's going to leave behind an energy, like a residue. Okay. And so, <laughs> right. And no, so, you and I agree. Cause, okay, go ahead. And so what I think it is, is that like the people, so I want, I want to, this is the best way I can explain it. So when you have carbon paper, you know, when you sign a document, and you have carbon paper, well, there's copies. There's multiple copies. You get one, so it so gets one, such a one. But you don't get the original. That's kept for records. So I think when a person passes or when it's been that sorrowful, it's the energy sits there. And the, it can manifest into what that person was, but it's not that person. That's why you have spirits that, that just kind of aimlessly wonder or they'll see half bodies because it's not the person. The person isn't there anymore. What that is is the is the, is the basic legal document or like the the carbon copy paper just walking around the original's gone but the carbon copies walking around that's why they're they look disembodied you know disembodied and and the sounds you know that some folks say that they make they're kind of you know asking for somebody or they're like saying something well that's because that's what they knew that's what that and, and it's hard to explain because people think i'm i'm, I'm kind of crazy for it but it's basically that carbon copy trying to imitate its archetype. The archetype being us, so it's trying to imitate that. But it's not, it can't, because it's not us. It's not the full human. It's just like a, a being of energy, but it can't do anything, so to speak, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. I agree with you 100%. I don't think that they are spirits per se, I think what happens is exactly that. It's an afterimage, a residue of what was with the ghost of consciousness, which is why a lot of times when ghosts kind of move through walls where doors used to be or events that happen replay themselves, people see car accidents repeated or a hitchhiker that's forever standing on the side of the road or that ghost that is forever falling down the stairs. I think those are after images in time. Um, I think people being comprised of energy in one form or another, I think certain types of materials, and this is maybe getting into a little more metaphysics than anything else, I think certain materials are better conductors or receptors to that kind of impression, right. almost like a Polaroid camera, where different types of chemicals or elements have to be perfect in order for that impression, that snapshot in time to occur. That's why a lot of times, I mean, have you ever seen a modern haunted skyscraper or a contemporary home that's haunted? No, you see older right. homes that are brick and stone and wood and granite and more natural, unchanged or altered man-made components that may be better conductors for things than than anything else i think that has more to do with with being the ghost of consciousness than the actual ghost of a person themselves right and and you notice too in a lot of 
folk tales or a lot of um, mythological tales, you'll notice some things like water. Water is a conductor for that sort of thing. You know, bridges. <laughs> people always thought the bridges were, you know, the connecting between the two and that water was the conductor. That's why a lot of spirits were seen around bridges because the water could conduct the spirit better than, say, like you said, like the skyscraper. I don't go into my local bank that they just built <laughs> a month ago and they're like, place is haunted, man. I mean, it's bad. It's bad. God damn bad. it. There's the ghost of Mr. Wilson. He's forever cashing his check. <laughs> And Mr. Wilson's still alive, so that's weird. He slipped and fell right on this uh, this artificial parquet floor. <laughs> His family sued us for millions. Darn yeah, it! Yeah, you don't you don't really see that. You you no. find it in in places that are older or at least built with with recycled or original materials. And the thing too is, I think a lot of times um, you have homes. You know where where they did some sort of ritual or or sort of a, a cleansing, and you you will attract that kind of energy. So people you know people love crystals, and that they attract certain <laughs> kinds of energy. So I think, you know, if you have that, it's not to say that, you know, you're using it for a positive thing, but there might be energies that can use it for something completely different. I so think that's like, more of a Schroeder's Schrodinger's cat situation where you're not contacting as you are utilizing your own energy through a focusing medium in order to charge up something that's already there, as if you're acting as a living battery. So it's not so much that you're contacting something as it is in your help manifesting something through power of intent or quantum mechanics or just a passing of energy through a, a crystal medium. I think it's more that than it is contacting a, a physical essence that's that's forever trapped in this limbo almost like an equivalent exchange thing you know you're giving yeah, exactly. this to receive this and this isn't always a good thing and i think also people um a lot of the time when they when they try to call for spirits like seances real were real big in spiritualism in the 1900s i mean people oh yeah people love those they had them they'd have like they'd be in the parlor and it was it was like a big family thing. Hey, you want to come over tonight? My uh, my wife's gonna summon my dead aunt. You want to do this? Let's do this. Let's get drunk and summon dead things. And do you have the strings were... ready and the, uh, the loose floorboard? <laughs> yeah, because a lot of times they would do that. Um, they would they would do that so that they would get some notoriety or fame. Um, the person, the medium, a lot of the times was just like a family friend or somebody they knew, and they'd put the black veil over her face. And she would roll her eyes back. Now, there have been cases where their voice is completely changed, which is kind of weird, you know. But like you said, they could have been giving energy to get other energy. And it's, we can't really say for sure that something negative couldn't have caused them to speak like that. You know, you're using energy, but they can also use that same energy. You know, if you're giving yourself willingly over to that, then that's a whole other issue. So it's... Our perception uh i think you and i talked about this last time when you get into what quantum mechanics really is it is kind of a bridge between what is the unknown and the spiritual and actual hardcore science because quantum mechanics is this whole weird doesn't make any sense kind of thing but once you start getting into that fundamentally we're talking about the construct or energy, the building blocks of the universe. When you open yourself up to 
being more aware or being focused on what you're feeling and thinking and seeing, you can perceive considerably more than the average person does. Part of that is by design. When we're young, we're wide open. We're in an open circuit. We're designed and hardwired to drink in everything because our body's in a learning mode. We watch our parents interact. We watch things on TV. We're, we're learning to read. Our, our minds are operating more efficiently and faster than they will at any other part in our lives. But we're also more aware with our eyes wide open to seeing things that other people can't see or won't see um, because they don't make sense where you aren't looking for something that's in a dark corner or uh, something that, that you hear that other people can't hear. That's why kids and animals particularly, I think, are more receptive because people as adults, once you clutter up your brain with life and work and relationships and sex and finances and all of these things that serve as distractions, you lose the ability to really focus and concentrate um, on things that maybe other people are better at. I think modern mediums or people that are more receptive to that, modern psychics who are actually legit and not trying to bilk you out of money, are able to perceive things on a level other people can't because brain is so full of garbage. True. And I think that's why you also see a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of Eastern uh, practitioners of meditation and and yep. a lot of the the yogis and things like that they can connect to that in a way that humdrum everyday average normal folks can't you know people are stuck in that 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 wake up eat breakfast go to work take my lunch break take my other breaks clock out go home make dinner watch sports watch tv go to bed Get up, do the exact same thing. Weekend comes, errands, mow the lawn, do this, do that. And I think <clears throat> when people do that, like it, it always, it always kind of saddens me a bit when when I ask people, well, you know, what are you getting into, or you know, what do you like to do, and and uh, you know, they, I'm nothing, I don't do anything, really, you like do anything, like you're okay, you're okay going to work and then coming home and and you know, like you don't go outside, you just sit in front of the TV, and to them that's that's okay but to me it's it's a lot different you know i like to work and then come home and and exercise my brain i like to do different things mentally to keep myself sharp now yeah i don't i haven't i don't see the ghosts and all that because i'm not open to that that's not something i'm open to but it's not that i don't um enjoy that field of study but i'm more into like the the aliens and the supernatural kind of aspect of it ghosts are awesome like it's it's really cool studying them and, and how folks die but i'm more into the history of yeah. places yeah like a, a few weeks ago i was sitting on the porch drinking port as one does and reading about spontaneous human combustion <laughs> <laughs> which when you get into the science of that in the the late 19th early 20th century um it gets into some interesting stuff but yeah that kind of stuff i've always found fascinating now it would have been ironic if you just spontaneously combusted that would have been unfortunate, yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, what happened to him? He was reading a book about spontaneously combusting, and then he spontaneously combusted. Nice. Synchronicity. 
That'd have been a big yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd have been a big time yikes. But yeah, I mean, and I'm the same way. Like I, I, I remember uh, one year I was watching the Olympics and it was the, it was the first time I'd ever seen curling. And I was like, this is fascinating. And I must've watched hours after hours of it. And I, I watch it every Olympics. Um, and I actually went to a local curling club and tried out. Like, I actually tried to do it. Well, suffice it to say, once I got on the ice, I was like a fish out of water. I'm sliding around, almost falling. These other folks are just sliding around the ice. I'm like, I am not coordinated enough to do any ice sports whatsoever. So on that day, I hung up my curling hopes and uh, and went home. So, you know. And that's the thing. Like, I'll start get I'll get into something. And then I'll research it and learn about it and then move on to the next thing. Do you know where the root of your interest comes from? Have you ever thought about that or asked yourself? A lot of my uh, alien kind of ufology, ufology um, and the like, that comes from just my love for science fiction. When I was a kid, my dad kind of nurtured that. Uh, I watched all kinds of science fiction movies. I was always into the old B movies. And I think it's it kind of comes from maybe another theory I have is that uh, human beings, some of us aren't from here. Like we, our ancestors, not us, like me and you, but like our ancestors, we trashed the last planet we lived on, left there, and came here. Now, obviously, I can't prove any of what I've just said. It's just a theory. And if you look at Mars, there's some 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 decent. I wouldn't so much say evidence, but some speculation that that could have been accurate. But I think that maybe like a DNA, because I think DNA in people, I think it transcends. So, you know, and maybe that's where people get a lot of like the past life kind of thing from. But I think it's yep. more your DNA records. So, you know, when the when you're when you're born, the DNA from your mother and father is passed on to you. You know, so you might like certain things that maybe your great grandfather liked, but your grandfather and your father didn't like. So it's kind of like you're you're getting that, and it bits and pieces, um, yeah, you obtain. Now, obviously, after a while, the DNA separates, and and it you know once your mother and father, then you know generations down, you might just only have a fraction of you know, that sort of thinking or feeling. But I think that that could be where it comes from, too. I don't know. You know, I've I've sat down and thought about that before. It's a good question, though. Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, mine came from a, a very specific place. And I remember exactly when. Um, when I was a kid growing up... Uh, our bedroom was in the basement and I was five and I had this old bed that had one of those sliding headboards. So behind the, uh, behind me and above me, it would have these little doors that you could slide back and forth. And it was like uh, 10 or 12 inches deep. So I could put my Voltron and transformers and Thundercats toys in there. And then nice classic. Yeah. Close them up. And, uh, I had a nightmare one night where I heard scratching from behind one of the closed doors. And instead of, uh, they would be pushed all the way to the left and the right. 
sometimes I would push them to the center to kind of hide that central panel. And they were closed in that way. And I woke up and I pulled them to the left and the right apart. And in there was this thing. It was just this shapeless black thing. It turned and looked at me with these glowing red eyes and it spit something that burned into my face. I woke up and I could still feel it. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs. My parents came downstairs. It took them forever to get, for them to calm me down. But after that, I was petrified of our, our basement. Um, I would sneak up in the middle of the night and <laughs> crawl into bed with my grandmother upstairs. I, I hated sleeping down there. But after that, I became really entrenched into seeking out things in the darkness to try and, and understand them or maybe face those fears uh, in a more direct way. Hmm. I never forgot that. Did not, is that house still there? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It wasn't an old house. It was... Uh, my great-grandfather was a carpenter, a general contractor in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and had built these um, track homes in uh, the early 1970s. It was just like a single-story home. It wasn't old or anything. And I don't think the place was actually haunted. I just think it was a really terrible dream that came from a really dark place. <laughs> um, we talked uh, We talked uh, Thursday um, about paranormal you know with the family and like talking to your family about paranormal we had a conversation about 80s and 90s toys uh, yep and i had one called the it was from the inhumanoids and it had a rib cage and you could put like, oh i remember that one you could put action figures in that i had that one yeah, yeah so did i so did i and it so terrifying <laughs> i think maybe a lot of our nightmares and stuff um came from some of the some of the old eighties and nineties cartoons and toys, which were which wasn't a bad thing. I liked the toys back then. They lasted longer. They they looked cool. The art design it was awesome. But I think so. Like like I said, the thing with the with the rib cage and 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 whatnot. I mean, that was it was terrifying to think about it. You know, you're putting like people inside of a, of a of a thing's rib cage, and there's like its heart and everything. And so, but but it's funny I still have know. nightmares about Lionel and his. Thundercat thong. <laughs> I was always a fan of Mumra myself. I was a big fan of Mumra. Oh, yeah. Mumra was fantastic. I just liked how... I, and I was... And my mom, uh, she always thought that I was... She was always worried about me because I always rooted for the villain. Because in the villain, I saw Absolute. It wasn't... You know, the heroes would catch the villain and then they would let him get away. And he would just do the same thing repeatedly over and over and over and the heroes would be like, oh, we're not, he got away, we'll get him next time. No, you got, once you get him the next time, kill him. It ends it, it's done. But I, you know, I get it. They don't want to, they don't want to have to, 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 you know, stoop to that level, which is why I usually like the, um, the anti-heroes. I, I like the anti-heroes a bit more because they operate in a little bit of a grayer area than, okay, we're just going to catch the guy and then we're going to put him in a prison. We know he can escape. He's escaped the same prison before, the same cell before, but we're going to go ahead and put in there. Now, you stay here this time, Mr. Criminal. Don't get out. We know you know how, but please don't. Can you please stay? And then he gets out, and then it's just like, 
Oh shucks, we'll get him next time. Like, no, that's not. That's not how that I, works. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm getting to the age where you look back and you say, "Well, you know, my day both both ways uphill in the snow to school <laughs> and <laughs> skateboards." But growing up in the time that we did, if you look at the stuff that's on today for kids and what we had back then. It was a lot more creative and engaging kind of content that wasn't afraid to dabble in the dark side a little bit. Um, like, I don't even know if they could get away with doing scary stories to tell in the dark Man. as a book today. We, I still, that's one of my, fa- those ink and pen drawings are so brilliantly haunting. Um, I can't wait to see that movie, by the way, that's coming out this year. Yes. It looks really good. But I loved that book growing up, uh, that you had Goosebumps, which was a little more on the tame side. You had the Nickelodeon show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yep. And you had a lot of these really creepy, kind of crazy dark stuff that just helped to fuel your imagination. Even like uh, cartoons like Mighty Max, which you can't even find anymore. The finale of that entire show was basically everyone dies. Mm-hmm. Like, like Virgil gets killed, Norman gets killed, and then it's Max, and he just deus ex machina resets the clock back to the beginning. But it was kind of brutal in a kid's show to just show people getting murdered. I mean, we we have to remember, too, like, one of my favorite all-time uh, cartoons is Transformers. Well, oh, yeah. the cartoon, the G1 cartoon, was one thing. But the movie, the movie, oh. they were cussing. Optimus straight gets like he gets really just blown away. Megatron is just bah, 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 and he's just shooting. You and got shooting, the shooting. touch. You got right. that awful soundtrack. And then they, no, that soundtrack's great. How dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> the 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 part where they he the, and this is what this is what got me as a kid because I was so used to being like, okay, they board that plane. They they board the the starship to Earth. And Megatron, they rip the doors open, and he comes in, and they're playing that that power metal song in the background. And he's just blasting, and the one dude grabs his leg, and he's like, Megatron, and he just looks down with like this absolute look of just, I don't care, and blows him away. I mean, they literally yeah. showed these characters dying in the yep. ship, getting holes blasted in them. The dude, the one of them, I think it's Ironhide, his mouth and his eyes like start burning. They're literally burning and smoke's coming uh, I out know, of his I mouth. And he just falls down dead. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, it was so cool to me because it was more real life than it was, you know, uh, a cartoon at that point. And then you had Unicron I... would eat planets. And inside of him, there was this uh, thing that they hung the the transformers and and uh and and uh, any any alien or life form and they dropped them in this pit and the pit was fueling uh unicron like it was helping to fuel his gigantically enormous orson wells body uh continuously yeah that was that was one of the last things that orson wells did before he died yeah. can you believe that and then they had another part in the movie where they it was like a um <clears throat> It was the Quintessons, and it was yeah. the judge, jury, and executioner all in one and they robot. Were terrifying their faces. Yeah. yeah, and they would be like, guilty or innocent. Either way, you got dropped into the pit of the Sharticons, and they showed the one guy getting ate 
by the Sharktacons. I was five years old when that movie came out. <laughs> five years old. And I probably and saw I'm it when I was crying. like, I, I saw it when I was five. I was like, I was mesmerized. I wasn't even, I wasn't crying or nothing. I was just like, this is awesome. And I've loved that movie ever since. I almost watched it on a yearly basis. I can quote it. I can pretty much quote the movie word for word. Especially my favorite part is when, because anytime Orson Welles talked in that movie, it was it was awesome. It was amazing. Orson Welles had <clears throat> amazing timber in his voice. Yes. The way that his voice resonated was was amazing. He had a voice that was made for radio. Oh, yeah. And then when they got Leonard Nimoy to play Galvatron and he transforms and he's like, I will rip open Ultra Magnus and every other Autobot until the Matrix has been destroyed. I was like, oh, I'd like that resonated with me when I was a kid. I was like, this is going to be good. And then even the end climax battle was just it was great. Speaking of Leonard Nimoy, another uh, random dark cartoon that is my absolute favorite I watch every year, but a lot of people don't remember, was Ray Badbury's The Halloween Tree, where Leonard Nimoy played the villain. If you've never seen that cartoon, see it, because it's masterfully done. Uh, The voice that he does for that character is incredible. It's also one of Ray Bradbury's best stories, I think. Celebration of Halloween. Huh. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, I'll have to check that out for sure. Um, because I, I like all kinds of things like that. And Leonard Nimoy also did In Search Of, which was like a 1970s uh, anthology show. Also, <laughs> speaking of things that scared me growing up, the Unsolved Mysteries theme song. Dude, same. same. I had I had nightmares of a boy went away on his bike. <laughs> I, and listen, he was never seen again. My <laughs> mom would watch oh it like all the time, <laughs> right? And that, like, I can I watch it now because I like it now. Like, Unsolved Mysteries is awesome. But back when oh, I was like, a kid, I like love you, that you can get the old school ones now on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Robert Stack is amazing. Oh man, and he was also Ultra Magnus. Ha! Yep. Tied that in perfect. Yep. And like it, like do 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 do. I was like, nah, nope, I'm not watching this because it was always somebody getting murdered every time I saw it. It was a missing person. Or somebody got murdered, and then it'd be like, update, the car was never found, and the guy is still at large, and he's living next door to you, and he's going to get you. They found her arm in a trash barrel. (laughs) It was such a, like, a a seriously, like, dramatized, because then they would show, like, the dramatization, and they had to put in the thing, dramatization, and I'm like, okay, I get that. But then it was, like, so serious, and the crime was so horrendous, I was just like... And they were like, update, the man is supposedly living in Ohio, right next door to you. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Uh, oh, my God. That's why I don't watch the show. <laughs> but it was great. And then they tried to bring it back with the guy from Law & Order. And it was okay. I watched a couple episodes of it. but Yeah, I couldn't get into it. Robert's deck was so iconic. It's hard right. when they bring... Like I, I've tried watching the new Twilight Zone, and I just I can't get into it. No, nope, I've tried. I won't do it. I, I just... Uh, yeah, you you can't beat the original. It's just not the same. If Rod Serling isn't involved, which obviously he's not because he's passed away, <laughs> he's been dead for a very long time. Um, right. <clears throat> I know even the '80s ripoff ones. No, like it has because the stories that they told in the Twilight Zone in the original are some of the hands down best science fiction horror what have you tales. My favorite being. Um, 
I have three of them. The one, uh, the Night of the Meek with the Santa Claus. The guy wants to be Santa Claus. Yes, that's, that's a Christmas thing. Like that, I, I love Christmas, so it kind of resonates. Um, the, uh, the I forget the name of it, but the one where the professor is going to kill himself, but his the students. Yeah, the Christmas died. one. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah the back. kids come back, talk um, him out of it. And then my favorite of the sign, like kind of like the 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 kind of uh, twist ending ones, is the Midnight Sun. Where they think they're actually getting closer to the sun, so they're everybody's going crazy, and then it burns out, and then it comes back, and the lady's sick from a fever, but the earth's now moving away from the sun, and I thought that was cool. I was like, oh, so she woke up. Oh, it was all a dream. Nah, <laughs> it's still a nightmare. And I'm like, oh, that's good. That's good. It, I it, love the one with Burgess Meredith. I finally have all the time. His glasses break. Oh yeah, because and his wife was henpecking him like crazy. She wrote all yeah, his books. Yeah. And it, 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 that reminds me of something from like, like I, I think Fallout Three kind of did something like jokingly, like kind of like an Easter egg for that. I remember. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think. Yep. And I mean, you know, everybody has a favorite Twilight Zone episode. Like they're they're all so well done. A lot of people are on the fence about it. Did you like the movie? No, I didn't hate it, mind you, but I am a just black and white. Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. I didn't really like Night Gallery either, though. Night Gallery, I, I feel like <clears throat> with Night Gallery, it got almost too dark and macabre. And with the Twilight Zone, there were some episodes that were dark, and they should have been. You know, the the one with the with the um, with the with the the Union troops and the the witch could freeze them. That had a dark oh, yeah. undertone of witchcraft to it. It had the book and <laughs> yeah. he burns it. Um, but I felt like Night Gallery just did that. Like they just they overdid it on the dark and macabre. And then the Twilight Zone movie to me was kind of more of like a campy. We're trying to we're trying to to make money off of this franchise, just like they did with the nineteen when they brought it back with Forrest Whitaker, and then they tried to do it again with Jordan Peele. I just feel like. I, leave, it, uh, leave, leave the good stuff alone. Let it, be. I, Let it be. I know the original version is iconic because anything that William Shatner does is. But John Lithgow does crazy in in the Twilight Zone movie uh, when he's looking at the gremlin out the window. Oh, yeah, yeah, So yeah, much yeah. more realistic than William Shatner does. My God, there's something on the way. <laughs> John, John Lithgow is like sweating and his eyes are bulging oh. out of his. He did that. Masterfully creepy. Also, I love the the tin can one in the Twilight Zone movie. Oh yeah, Even yeah, that, that, kick the can. That whole movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole movie did though have that that horrible pallor of negativity over it after the actor got killed. Um, My God, man, there is a gremlin on the wing. What, <laughs> Spock? Give me all the data on the gremlin on the wing. I now with William Shatner, I, I didn't like. I, I'm so the thing about the Twilight Zone. I'm not a big fan of the more known episodes. Like, I don't like that one. Um, yeah. I don't like the Billy Moomy one where the kid's like, you're going in the cornfield. If I'd have been that yeah. guy, he would have been gone. Because, I mean, come <laughs> on. Like, that kid could destroy the world, dude. Like, you people are stupid. Like, he's just a kid. No, that's Satan. That's the devil. <laughs> that is the devil. He put the guy in the cornfield and he killed the dog. Like, come on, man. Kill it with fire. I'm like, Billy Moomy, you better get back to Lost in Space. Right now, or you're grounded for a month. But then he was in the one with the with the um, 
with his grandma and playing phone. And I thought that was cool, you know, but man, <sighs> the one with uh, the soldier and the ballerina where they're trapped oh, yeah. in that tube and they couldn't figure out how to get out. A lot of the stories are just so masterfully done in their subtlety where they, they critique the human experience or perception and their episodes that leave you thinking it's so much more masterfully done than giving you all the answers or kind of hitting you over the head with a lesson or a plot point or it was more there was an artful approach to how they wrote back then whether it's in classic radio dramas or Mm -hmm. in some of those classic shows where where they leave it up to you to resolve things or to decide how you feel about something as opposed to just kind of ham-handedly shoving something in your face or right. giving you all of the and and the best thing is is that each ending was different there was happy endings there were sad endings dark endings the one one of my another one of my favorites that uh um i really enjoyed and and i enjoy it because it was much like one of my favorite books um fahrenheit 451 and uh that was the one with uh, burgess meredith where yeah. They were outlawing people were be they were obsolete, and so he's sitting there at the end reading the Bible and just kind of you know I know I I'm I'm comfortable dying I'm good, and the guy's terrified he's like let me out let me out, and they see his cowardice yeah how much of a coward he was so then he's rendered obsolete, and it just kind it was kind of like a to me it was kind of like speaking on how society has a hive mind when it comes to things and people don't like to think for themselves and they want you to be in these cliques or they want you to be part of this movement or that movement. And if you're not, and if you do do deviate from that path, you're this or you're that. And I'm not going to get into all that just because this isn't the show for, for politics and all that. I think it's interesting that a lot of those shows um, also served as society critiques. When you think about what was going on in the 1950s and 60s with societal discourse, where you had really two frames of mind and everyone, if you weren't with us, you were against us. You're either on that camp or our camp. In a lot of ways, it's similar to where we are today in 2019, where everything is just so polarized and over-dramatized and... There's no such thing as gray where you either have to be for something or against it, or God forbid you you say something that uh, the majority don't agree with or that can trigger. It's just so stupid. Right. But those even a lot of Ray Bradbury stuff. I'm yep. I'm a huge Ray Bradbury nut. I think as far as being able to create a word salad that would really draw you down a path, he he was brilliant in the words and phrases that he created, but a lot of his stuff was really dark and very much a critique on society. Um, A lot of his stories kind of got into that kind of area where uh, one of the most, one of my favorite stories, I can't even remember the name of it, forgive me, but it's one where the astronauts are kind of lost in space. They land on a planet and God was just there. And so they they kind of freak out. They go to another planet looking, and then one just kind of treating the people like dirt. One of them decides to stay behind um, 
and the astronauts go looking out there. The one that stays behind, come to find out God had been on the planet the whole time. Um, it was a critique on people looking so hard for something that they miss the opportunities that lie at their feet. Um, yeah, Bradbury had a, a great way of kind of drawing you to a conclusion without really shoving it in your face. I'm a big fan of um, Isaac Asimov, who yeah. uh, who also like especially with the um, with the uh, sort of the Robot Chronicles, if you will, with iRobot and and all that. Um, but he has an amazing book called Nightfall, and it's basically it's about so every um, every so many years a cataclysm happens, and so but it's only it's like every five thousand years, and so. The people, there's there's archaeologists that find like this when they're digging they find soil and they're like okay but then they keep digging and they find well this is a whole another civilization and they dig underneath some soil and they find that there's some damage they dig underneath they find another and they keep finding the layer of civilization destroyed soil civilization so on and so forth and so on and so forth and come to find out that there is a um there uh, they have they have multiple suns. And once every 5,000 years, it completely goes black. All the suns are eclipsed. And so <clears throat> people don't know darkness at all. They don't. It's never dark. And so they have a cave on the planet, and it's like an attraction, and people go into it. And uh, scientists go in, and when they come out, all they want is darkness. They don't want the light anymore. They don't want the, the light on them. They just want to hide and... and um, and not come out, and then when it happens, society collapses. And it's it was it's kind of a nice take on the whole like, you know, uh, herd mentality. <laughs> yeah, like people went crazy. They didn't understand yep. that it's going to get dark. Just turn on the lights. We can still function as a society. And there was a whole religion built around it, uh, around like the cataclysms and things like that. And people were predicting it, and it was just it was well, a good book. It's a good book. That's like Stephen King's short story, and then they turn it into the movie, The Fog. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. The Fog? No, The Mist. That's John Carpenter. Yeah, The Mist, where it's that same kind of thing where people in a situation of unknown and survival and possible apocalypse, you get to see how people really are. Their masks kind of fall apart, and then you've mm -hmm. got religious nuts, and then you've got other people that are just trying to, to look at things objectively and say, no, we can survive this if we just think smartly. And it's just and, weird, and and the, and the book itself is fantastic. I, I definitely recommend it. it. It kind of I wonder if um, if that the idea for Pitch Black was taken from that book because Pitch Black is kind of similar, except there's creatures that live in the planet, and then when it gets dark, they all come out and and, and things like That's that. That's another but, fantastic movie. Yeah, I that movie's great, and I like yeah. the Riddick series, save for the last movie. Because all it was was a horrible retelling of Pitch Black. It was just terrible. But mm -hmm. I liked that movie and, and the Riddick movies and the animated Riddick movie. Because I think Riddick is a fantastic character. Like, just a, as a person who loves science fiction, that character, and then when you learn about his past and where he comes from, and it's just... And talk about an anti-hero. Yeah. Oh, he's the anti-hero to end all anti-heroes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, he knows about that, the girl that's... Uh, that or the or the the boy that's really a girl, and uh, she's hiding that because she doesn't want people to know, so she can be tough. And then he ends up breaking her out of a prison and all that. But 
Um, and I thought then the Diesel whole, did a good job with that character yeah, too, agreed. as opposed to you know just driving cars. I and the thing is, I like the first <laughs> couple uh, Fast and Furious movies because there was yeah. cars. <laughs> you know, they actually yep. drove cars and raced. Um, but I wish he would go back to doing that that character. I wish he would get a good director um, and kind of take it into that uh, that dark cult following style of movie like say the first blade movie that yeah. has that grittiness to it that doesn't have the hollywood shine on it like just has that like like oh man riddick you're like i think so they made a game for the xbox the original xbox called the chronicles of riddick escape from butcher bay and you play as him as he's locked up in that slam and you're going through it and i'm like this is that's the, a cool and, concept and this is what i love about video games I get to play something that that I would have watched in a movie, but I get to actually play it out, and I get to make these different decisions and exhibits in it, and it's great because you're beating exhibit with this metal pipe because he's one of the top-tier prison guards. And so you knock on his door, and he's like, I'm going to give you the beating of your life, Riddick. And you come out, and you're beating him up, and oh, it's so good. It's I def- if, if you can find it, um, it's also for they, – they remade it for 360 – with uh, another British game called Dark Athena, which is pretty cool too. Uh, if you can find it, I definitely recommend it because I really love that game. It's a fantastic game. I love the first Bioshock game yes. for the same reason that it's so atmospheric and dark. And that game was a real just game changer for me as far as getting introduced to kind of unique games. I, I got into that and then I got into Fallout. Um, yeah, that game is just brilliantly done in the same kind of way. Sometimes you can you can find movies that are a little underground that are really great. Um, two movies that I love for different reasons. If you want to find a Bioshock in a movie, it has subtitles. But The City of Lost Children um, is a French independent film. Um, it is worth a watch. It is brilliantly done i can't remember the name of the really tall actor huge dude who was in the original hellboy plays oh, the ron lead. perlman you talking about ron perlman ron, yeah ron perlman's in that um but it is it is very steampunky bioshock seaside it's a really twisted weird movie um another great one that came out it it lost its edge because it came out just before the matrix is dark city that's oh, Dark another, City's fantastic. I love that Dark movie. City is fantastic. I but love it that got, movie. It, it, in concept, it got totally eclipsed by The Matrix, but it is so brilliantly dark and visually amazing. It was just a really cool concept. That I saw that movie in the theater when it came yeah. out. Um, and it's funny because the, the main character, uh, Rufus Sewell, um, that plays... Um, oh, oh, I can, I'm trying to think of the main character's name. John, I can't remember his name. It's John. Oh, I just remember the doctor saying, "Yeah, you're almost there, John." <laughs> Towards the end, because oh, it was Kiefer Sutherland. He's, yeah, what, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, yeah, because he's yeah. training him to be. Hey, just a strong you're almost like there, John. You're almost there. Um, Keep working at it, John. <laughs> Murdoch, that's it, John. Murdoch. Yeah, Murdoch. John Murdoch. Yep, yep. Um, but man, I love that movie. Easily one of my definite favorites in science fiction, and it's funny. Because, like I said, uh, Rufus Sewell plays um, uh, Obus Grubenfuhrer Smith in um, 
the man in the high castle. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of alternate history. And yeah, so the man in the high castle for folks that don't know what that is, it's about if the Nazis and the Japanese actually won world war two, the Nazis take New York, Japan bombs us. Uh, they actually, they actually bomb, or I'm sorry, Germany bombs us with a nuclear bomb hits Washington and so Japanese Japan invades uh, California, takes California. The Nazis get New York, and then there's like a middle that's like a neutral zone. And all these characters and their lives, and they're coming into play. And, and you see some historical figures like um, so Hitler's still alive, and um, you have all the the players. You have um, uh, uh, um, I hate when I draw blanks. Um, and people are like, well, hurry up and spit it out. I ain't got all day to wait for you to spit this thing out. <laughs> um, the propaganda, uh, uh, Goebbels is in it. Um, you have all these, the, the prime Nazi players, the prime Nazi generals, they're all in it. And um, it's really cool because they find these films. And the films show what happens when we win the war. And it shows like all the old uh, pictures of raising the flag at Iwo Jima and doing all this and doing all that. And it's really a fantastic series, and they're actually the this year is the final season of it, and um, it's it's based on a Philip K. Dick novel. Um, if anybody cares to to ever go find it, and Philip K. Dick is a fantastic author, by the way. Um, but yeah, the Man in the High Castle, same guy from Dark City. Because when I saw him, I'm like, I know that guy from somewhere, and I'm like, Dark City. And actually, I have the DVD. And the Blu-ray now. I actually got the Blu-ray like some some years back for like five yeah, bucks. <laughs> five bucks. And I was like, oh, a um, movie that nobody cares about. But it's but it's good. I cared, and I think that uh, that matters to me. And and it's funny that you say that because I think there's only one. My buddy Spider. He's the only other person I know that's seen it. And I'm like, yeah, Dark City was fantastic, wasn't it? So it's cool to find somebody else who's seen that movie because I saw it in the theater and it was so good. It was so well done. Jennifer Connelly did a fantastic job of being his wife. She did. Yeah. If you like that, you definitely trace down the city of lost children that, uh, I, I was, I found them kind of both around the same time period. There were some really cool movies that were coming around around that time. And it's funny you bring up Bioshock. Um, and, and the reason I like Bioshock is for, is for, uh, is for two reasons. And I remember it. I was I was a I was either a sophomore or junior in college, and it was my spring break, and I rented it. And I remember I didn't. I think I spent twenty four. I might have stayed up all night playing it. Like I, I beat it in like two or three days, and it was just like it was so good. And the reason I liked it, one is because I really love the Art Deco style. That as uh, do I. Uh, oh, it was, it's beautiful. The posters and the it's very and red. Atlas shrugged. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was very. Yeah. It, it was Atlas shrugged in a roundabout way. Yeah. yeah, um, and then the second reason is because of the twist. That twist, oh, yes. oh, so good. Would you kindly? And then you're like, and then the whole time, you know, Fontaine, and and you're like, oh, Atlas, and you're like, oh, and then he's like, your family's in that sub, and then he blow, and then he blows it up, and you're like, mm, you. Come to find out, yeah, and yeah, I, I, I kind of tiptoed around it in case nobody's played it because that is probably one of my favorite um, kind of twists in the game. In the, in I the played, series, actually, 
I played Bioshock 2. That was okay. Was I bad. liked I liked Bioshock Infinite. Um, it wasn't the game that we were supposed to get. If you chase down and actually look up the gameplay footage that they did, I can't remember if it was at E3 or something, but they it was going to be a completely different game. That game looked amazing, more so than the one we got. But if you play the DLC for Bioshock Infinite, you go back to the original Rapture mm-hmm. before the fall and being able to walk around that environment before everything gets trashed was one of the the best things about Bioshock Infinite is that that DLC that's worth a playthrough. Well, that yeah, the, and, and the, the string Bioshock theory awesome. idea too. Yep. The, the whole... Oh, yeah, where she becomes quantum <laughs> superposition. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. see, that part, of, that part of it, I was like, uh, okay, it's not... It's not horrible, but like the reason I loved Bioshock Infinite was because the whole like the art style of Americana. I think that's that's a really awesome art art style, like the whole Americana yeah, thing, which is cool the to me. pinnacle of American exceptionalism personified right. in Florida cities. And they had like the court, they had like the the barbershop quartet singing on the on the little like hover blimp that's going by, and and it God. it was cool, and like it, and you see. <clears throat> so at the beginning, you know, you're you're dealing with uh, with Comstock, and you're like, this dude's super racist, and he's a jerk. And then you meet Daisy Fitzroy, and she's just a terrorist. And so like, you realize that both of these two these two people are horrible people, and you're the only one that isn't a horrible person. But you are also a horrible person because you're him, but he's right. you. But you also gave up your own daughter so that and then and that's what Bioshock Infinite was to me. It was just like a lot of things happening at once. By the time you get to the end of the DLC, what happens with Elizabeth is so brutally tragic, yes. even though it ties together the last game with the very first game in terms of, of how everything comes full circle. It's tragic that be as opposed to staying where she was, the ability to go anywhere, be anything. Yep. She couldn't let it go. Couldn't let one last version of her father survive. Uh, and it ends up being her undoing. It's just kind of so sad. Now, um, I don't know if you've read it, but there's actually a Bioshock book. And it's called I, yeah. Rapture. Rapture. Yep. Fantastic I book. I like that book. Yeah, because it was it was awesome seeing how the city came together and backstory that mm-hmm. you lose in the final game. And then it collapses. The characters. You get to be yep. there when the society collapses. Yeah. And it's so cool because you, you get the you get like the, the sort of past um uh life of Frank Fontaine and who he was and he's just a thug. He's like he's basically a thug, but he's smart. He's an intelligent hoodlum, so to speak. He's and Capone. So, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. That's yeah. exactly that's a good point. He is based, very basically Capone. Al Capone. Yeah. Um, now, in terms the of way Bios- that, the way that he talks is very Capone. And that's like when I when I was reading the book, I felt like yeah, this dude he's a, he's a he's he is a Capone esque style character. Like he's that old nineteen um, forties mobster uh, uh, character. You know what I mean? From the old movies, where like hey. You're, Get him to sit down. I'm going to give him a couple punches in the face. And that's him. That's Frank Fontaine. And Shut was... up, Mimsy. 
We can talk about South Park later because that is a that, that okay, boss. Party of those old Bugs Bunny villains. Yeah, the little short guy and the big tall one. Yeah, but yeah. It, it was so cool. And and then of course you have the the Andrew Ryan. You know he's he's the the end all be all millionaire. He's like billionaire. I want this to be done. I want you all to be free to do what you want. But. It's just to be in the confines of what I want. So, no uh, propaganda. I don't want any kind of communism in here. Nothing. But you're still free to do what you want. But only what I dictate for you to be free. And that is always a really complex... I I find myself intrigued by characters like him or Robert House from the Fallout series. Yep where you have someone who is arguably brilliant in a very Tony Stark way, where there's literally nothing that they can't figure out a solution to mentally, where they build and shape the world that they live in. um, That ends up being kind of their, they create their own problems and their own downfall in a way. It's kind of sad, like in the same way that Andrew Ryan building Bioshock and the concept of it, is visionary what it ends up becoming though is a complete nightmare right and so much worse than the world he, he left behind i guess that makes him a really tragic hero and then in the second one to me what i didn't like about the second one is i felt like all you did was run into a room and, and then it became a horde mode kind of an aspect and so it felt it was so much more linear with something that right. was just kind of but the DLC to Bioshock 2 is fantastic. That, oh, yeah. Minerva's Den. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. It's like With they, the they old school that, analog computers. Yeah. The, the it, whole thing was awesome. It's like they realized uh, we kind of messed up on the second one. Because I, I got the, when it came out, I bought the 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 collector's edition that has the record yep. and, and everything else. Then I played it and I'm like, oh, this is kind of a letdown. Even though the, the, because, you know, I thought playing as a big daddy, I was like, oh, I'm about to be a beast. No, you're not about to be a beast. And honestly, that was the only thing about bio, the original Bioshock I did not like. I didn't like to ha- I didn't like becoming a big daddy. I mean, I understood why it had to happen, but I felt like I should have still been able to be human I had a lot of questions. Like when that drill just goes into your throat, make you sound like one, how come you're able to take all of that off and everything's cool afterward? Like, right. okay, you're not a big daddy anymore. It's fine. You're all right. Yeah. What? Because no, I just, I got my larynx drilled out. What are you talking about? Maybe you took a, maybe you took a plasma. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Totally but, regenerated. But yeah, you know that. And like, cause to me, when he put the big daddy suit on, I was like this, it's kind of like Halo because Master Chief suit has to be screwed in and it's it's a grueling process to get it on. They have to go through all this training. But the Big Daddy suits seem the same way. And then the Big Daddies just seem to be mindless. They don't seem to have a conscience, so to speak. They just want to take care of the little sisters. And I don't know if that maybe had to do with some hypnotism or some brainwashing. Uh, but yeah, like at the end, you're just laying there in the bed holding the girl's hand. I'm like, dude, what? Did... <laughs> I have more questions than answers at this point, and I want to know why. But the experience is is it's for me. It is one of the best 
games on the for me at the time was I got it on the 360, but it was on the 360. That and the first Mass Effect, those two games, just, just, just. I mean, that for me was the changing of gaming. And then Fallout 3 came out in 2008, and then that was another change. It's like they have these games that are just like, man, what are they gonna do next? What are they really gonna do next? It's hard to think. Uh, I've been waiting to have that same kind of feeling, but I think a lot of things have to be in perfect alignment for you to 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 feel that way. I mean, sometimes it just has to be something that's completely new and fresh. Like uh, Atomic Heart is coming out, and oh, yeah, that, I, saw that. I, I think looks really interesting and unique in a very different way. Um, so I'm curious to try that out. For me. Uh, and and I was just talking about this today. Um, uh, it, it's a it's it's kind of like when when I find a book and I haven't found and I'm and I'm about due. Uh, when I find a book um, that makes it to a point to where I want to spend every single minute of the day reading it, you know. If I if I'm just if I have time to kill, I read it. If I'm laying in bed at night, I read it. I wake up in the morning and I read it, and I don't stop reading it. And I, I'm about due because it's been a while. And usually, it's a trilogy for me. It's usually a series of three books, um, and I just blow through it. And I think for me, the next game that is going to be in that same vein is either going to be Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, that does look good. Or Ghostwire. And I haven't seen a lot of gameplay on Ghostwire, but I even heard of that one. I'm a big fan of Japanese culture, like the mythology, the history, uh, all of it, and just the way and the, the 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 etiquette and everything else. Like it's a fascinating study, and so Ghostwire is kind of like it almost reminds me of kind of like a Death Stranding, but without so much of the. Hideo Kojima kind of like I don't know what's going on in this game so I'm just throwing everything at you and you know if you catch some of it fine but <clears throat> it's uh, it's made by the same guy that made uh, the first Resident Evil um, in 1996 uh, Shinji Mikami and it's kind of like these people die but then they become something else and so like they start taking over the city and it's it I can't really explain it. You'd have to watch the trailer because it's one of those uh, games that doesn't make any sense until you watch the trailer, then you understand it. Like if somebody were to explain it to you, like a Hideo Kojima game, you'd be like, wait, what? What's with the baby? Why is he carrying the baby in the jar? I don't. I mean, because that's what Hideo Kojima does best. Makes games that nobody understands what's going on until you're like (laughs) a third of the way in the game. Yeah, I felt that way about the first Silent Hill game. That was a creepy environment and world. And the graphics weren't that great. When the, like I, I went back and played it. Recently. Oh, I did too, and I was like, "What the?" <laughs> right. I'm like, "What?" But but what was cool about the Silent Hill series? I, I'm a, I like the room. I really enjoyed the room. That's probably my favorite Silent Hill. A lot of people say two, or, or some people really like three. But the room was cool because you're just like trapped in this room, and you hear these noises. You're going through holes in the wall, and you end up in different places. I think under the right conditions, I think Silent Hill could be a fantastic game. And they and it was almost going to come out. 
Um, and I never got to play the trailer for it. And I guess they made a similar game called, or not a similar, but like they were working on a game called Allison Road, which is supposed to be in that same kind of vein. But it, I believe it got canceled too. That the Silent Hill world, there's a, a ton of lore and stuff that mm-hmm. I've, I've read up on just for the heck of it. There's a lot built in there that's really difficult to translate into other mediums. Like the movie. What did you think of the movie? The first movie is amazing. The second movie is horrible. I agree. Because the first one was really cool because you're kind of like, it's, it's, the first movie was like playing the game. Because, you know, you're walking and all of a sudden the play starts changing. Yeah. I mean, when that horn goes off and, you know, the wallpaper just does whatever and pain flicks off and then that creepy janitor guy who's obviously a lecherous old douche just right. <laughs> starts climbing out his tongue and yep. whatever he was infecting the i was like nope no thank you i'm right. good and and i think the reason why silent hill is so good is because it plays on our our uh our, 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 our rational fears of darkness right. of just creepy people of the of like creatures that crawl in the night of you know things like things like pyramid head it's just a dude with a long sword. If this was Doom, I could take that thing out. No problem. I, I think it plays on the concept of what H.P. Lovecraft dabbled with so expertly. When you are confronted with things that are so far removed from your reality, you end up just being completely destroyed mentally. where You, you can't process or fathom what it is that you're looking at which I think is for most of us what our deepest fears are, where you find yourself ripped away from reality and, and stuck in this weird situation that doesn't make sense and compute. And how would you process? Would you just fall apart? Or And and what I like too about about the first movie is just the the atmosphere of the movie. Yeah. And like the the, yep. the the score and the ambiance and all that and like she's walking the, the it's ash it's not snow it's ash just falling from the sky and I'm like man this is good and then the second one comes out and I was like what it, but they what they tried to do with the second one is I think they tried to meld the second game and the third game into a movie they did yeah and it ended up introducing the the backstory and the cult and yeah it was way too much and I was like. And the thing with Silent Hill that always kind of confused me is, is she dead or is she trapped? Because her husband, like, gets that call, but it's not really... uh, That part always confused me about that movie. Like, I think she was dead, but I don't think she was dead. I... I, Yeah. Go ahead. I got the feeling that she was dead. (laughs) See, what what I thought... Um, is that, and I think this is how the second one is. Um, it's been a long time since I played the second one, but it was, it was something that she had repressed. So it was like, like she went crazy. And if she was dead, it was a, it was kind of like her own, her own personal hell, so to speak. Oh, right. Yeah. But uh, I don't know that whole movie, like the first one's good. But it, like I said, it leaves more questions than answers. Like you're just like, wait, wasn't? But she, wait. I don't know. I'm glad they didn't make a third one. I'll just say that much. 
I don't really care when when they get like the whole when they when they get a video game movie. Some are made really well. Others not so much. I mean, I did enjoy seeing Pyramid Head <laughs> go up against whatever that other thing she turned into, but Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And rip the skin off that one like person just slap it on the wall. I was like, "Oh, well that's that's, that's cute. That's She's interesting." Cool. It's interior decorating right there. That's adorable. <laughs> but I mean, to me, the the uh, the some of the best horror games are games like um, uh, I don't know if you ever played. It's called Fatal Frame, and no, you you it's in a <laughs> it's in a Japanese village, of course, because it's me, right? Um, <laughs> But you have a camera, and the only way you can see these ghosts is through this camera. And you have to take pictures of the ghosts to trap their spirits, or to, to, to release their spirits, so to speak. I, I should say release instead of trap, but... And you have to have special film to fight the bigger ghosts. And that kind of play... So you're like, you, you might hear moaning, or you might hear like, like something behind you, and you can't see it. But you lift the camera up to your face, oh man, you know, it, there's, a, there's a lot of good, like moments of like oh my god i think i almost went to the bathroom in my pants <sighs> japanese horror uh is some of the best horror imaginable agreed agreed like the original grudge the original ring yes uh all of those are really brilliant have you ever heard of or seen uzumaki what's it about basically spirals <laughs> There's, um, it's hard to describe. You'd, you really need to see it because it's some of the most screwed up stuff in horror I've ever seen. Um, the long and short of it is people start becoming obsessed in this town with, with spirals and, um, people start doing weird things and turning into spiral or, you know, finding them throwing themselves inside machines and becoming spirals and this city in almost an hp lovecraft kind of way um is being taken over by this dark and ancient evil that's in the middle of i think it was a lake um at the end of the movie when everyone is kind of dead or turned into these creatures the the lake is empty and there's just this pyramid in there with the door open. It's a really weird, weird movie. Kind of like, uh, another great one is in the mouth of madness. Have you ever seen that? That's an older, like eighties movies. It it made these movies, isn't it? Uh, I think it was, I think it was nineties, but that's another really great one that, that gets into some really weird. Oh yeah. the The John Carpenter movie. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Where basically the world ends, but um, it's very Cthulhu mythos. That Uzumaki you're talking about, I read the manga of that. That yeah, okay, it was I based read the on manga, and I like the library. The movie had, is really good. The library had, I think, the like the first volume, and then I couldn't find the rest of them because they didn't get the rest of them. And I'm like, you've got 52 Naruto mangas. Can I get the second one of this one? Because I really was liking the first one and. It was cool. Yeah, yeah. Because you said spirals, and I'm like, spirals? I know I've... If, if that's a manga, I know I've read something about that. 
um, before. And I'm like, who's my? And then I, I'm like, oh yeah, the manga. Man, I'm, I'm gonna have to watch that movie though. You, you, I mean, you've recommended so many movies tonight. I'm, mean, you're at me busy for like the next couple days. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, nuts with really weird, random underground. That was in the golden days of blockbuster. Um, oh yeah, that's true. That you wasn't, don't yeah. Discovering organic kind of weird underground movies was so much easier when you could just kind of go around and poke through. It's kind of hard to do that now because algorithm-wise, a lot of that stuff is buried towards the very bottom of lists uh, or simply can't be digitized. So you, you find that stuff a lot less frequently now than you could back then where you could just go in and find this really weird, strange DVD and be like, well... That's how I found a lot of those movies, but you don't have that experience anymore. I miss being able to go to a video store and spend 20 to 25 minutes arguing <laughs> with your loved one over which one you were going to check out. <laughs> now, one of my all-time favorite science fiction movies um, uh, was found similar to this. Um, my, my dad would always talk about this movie because he's, a big, he's, he's into science fiction like I'm into science fiction. And he would always talk about this movie about um, a, a guy, an alien that came down and would, was, was killing people by taking their adrenaline because their adrenaline was a drug back on the planet he was from. So he was an alien drug dealer. He would take your adrenaline and then he would go back to his planet and he would sell it. And I was like, what? I'm like, That's a, that sounds kind of cool, actually. Yeah. And, and so like an, an interplanetary cop was coming to get him. And they were going to have this big war. And I'm like, I'm going to watch that movie one day. And so I end up um, looking it up and it was called I Come in Peace. And it has Dolph Lundgren. And I'm like, I'm, I was going, I think I was going through the, uh, the, the videos at Blockbuster near my house at the time. And I'm like, what, they have this? Because I was reading the back. I'm like, oh, this is that movie. So I end up watching it and I fell in love with it. It was fantastic. And I, and I know like... I heard you laugh when I said Dolph Lundgren because we all think of, you know, if he dies, he dies. Or we think of He-Man. Um, but he was actually pretty... I mean, the thing with well, I kind I kind of liked Universal Soldier simply because the concept was so unique, right? even though it, it's like, it's kind of an awful movie. <laughs> but, but the thing with, with 80s science fiction movies, they're all B-movies. They all have yeah, great plots, are. but the action, the acting... I mean the they they had critters. They had gratuitous nudity and swearing. I mean Killer lot, Clowns from Outer Space. Right. Um Total Recall, even though the book yep. is way different than the movie. Um you had that Terminator, the Terminator two, even though I like the first Terminator better, just because it was a darker movie than the second one was. The second one was like that kid and he's like, Say hasta the Vista, chill, dude. And, it, and here's Arnold after La Vista, baby. And you're like, come on, man. Like, I mean, you're just have you seen? Uh, have you far. seen The Running Man? Yes. With uh, yeah, that's that's another really great, awful movie that not a lot of people bothered to see. That strangely enough was a Stephen King story. Yeah. Um, and and Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it with uh, yeah. with the guy from the original game show host. I can't remember his name, but he was uh, perfect. I think it was Richard Dawson. Yeah, Richard Dawson. Yeah, Richard yeah. Dawson from Family Feud. Who loves who and who do you... And he was like, 
He was like, I'll be back, Killian. I'm going to get you. You're going to I'm get going it to... when they get back here. You're going to pay. Hello, cutie pie. <laughs> <laughs> and they had, uh, oh, was Jesse uh... Ventura was in it? Yeah, he... Jesse the Body Ventura. Yeah, he was playing. He... Yeah. He was playing one of the gladiators. Yeah. Buzzsaw and Dynamo. Yep, yep. Yeah. And they had the the electric creepy opera singer. And he he didn't wasn't that the one yeah, he was the one who was driving the car. Yeah. At the end he gets electrocuted and his his awful tidy whitey is trying to rape whatever her name was. I can't remember. Yeah, he got straight shocked up. He got straight yeah. shocked See, uh... up. The ice hockey dude was cool. That was I think uh Sub Zero. Yeah, that was yeah, Sub Zero. Yeah. That was it's such a good like B science fiction movie. Like it's so good. I, you know, people are like, ah, oh, this is you like this? I'm yeah. sorry, that is so much better than the Hunger Games. Um, the fight. Hunger Games anybody is, <laughs> like the only like one of the one of the best science fiction movies I think that's come out in a long time, in my opinion, is The Maze Runner. And oh yeah, I agree with you there. I read the books, the first three. I, I don't I don't really like to read prequels very much, just because I like I know what's going to happen, and so like I, I could play a prequel game better than I could watch a prequel m- movie or read a prequel book, because a prequel book to me, I'm just like I already know what's going to happen. I don't really the story's been told to me. Like I, it's I I finished it, but. I remember um, reading uh, uh, that book, The Maze Run. I remember reading it at work. And I remember just sitting in the back reading. And they're like, customer assistance to such and such. And I'm like, that's, that's me, but I'm not going to move right now. I'm just going to finish finish reading this. And I, I spent like that whole shift doing that. And luckily that place isn't in business anymore, so I don't have to worry about anything coming from that. <laughs> but... You know, it was it was it was cool. It was a it's a good series of books. I definitely rec- recommend that. And then there's another uh, trilogy of books about a man. I th- they made a show about it. It was like Pine something Pine, and it was like a, a village. So like the people all lived in this village, and nobody could leave. Nobody was allowed to leave. Because the Earth had ended, or the the planet had went into like a like a like a, I don't want to say an extinction level event, but like it turned into like this sort of wasteland, and so um, oh man, like these creatures were were outside, and if you went outside, the creatures would get you, and you that's why you weren't allowed outside. But they never told anybody that they they it was they had it under the guise of I think. Um, you live here now. Uh, we'll let you leave and make phone calls when we when we can. But they never could make those phone calls, and then sooner or later they just adapted to society. They had to, and they go, "Well, if you leave, we'll kill you." And then some, like some of the people, got to know what really happened, but other folks didn't. And it's like Pine Woods or Pine something, and it was a really good series of books. Um, uh, and it it kind of it kind of played on that. Um, sort of Armageddon style uh, storytelling, which was cool to me. Like I, I really like the whole apocalypse theme, and yeah, so like you know, a lot of the old science fiction movies did it. A lot of the uh, a lot of games do it. I think the games do it almost to death sometimes, especially with zombie games. I feel like 
it's kind of run its course when it comes to, to zombie games. In my opinion, anyways. I don't know. I uh, I agree. <laughs> okay. So, should uh, oh, go should ahead. we tell? Should we tell a few ghost stories? <laughs> I was right. thinking that... Uh... We've spent like most of the time just going on. Um, what that, and that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, yeah. Tell me your most frightening or paranormal experience you've ever had. Really, there are two, but uh, that are really worth telling. In the uh, in the summers, I used to. My grandmother would pick me up from school, and uh, my family is originally from Canada, the most northeastern tip of New Brunswick. This is island called Misko. It's beautifully remote. Like, picture a, a typical island in a Stephen King movie that's isolated from everything, and that was the place. So every summer, as soon as school let out, my grandmother would pick us up. and My brother and I would we'd go up to the ancestral family home on this island. You'd have to get on a ferry to cross over uh, to get there. And where we were is on this peninsula um, from the center of the island. You'd have to drive down this this long dirt road over barrens, which are essentially just nothingness, uh, except like quicksand and peat moss. Um, it's this you know single track road. You drive for 20 minutes before you'd get to the peninsula. And there was about 20, 25 houses, um, most of which are my relatives. And uh, the house had been in our family since the early 1800s. So it had a lot of really great energy about it. But one of the more interesting things about the island was how haunted the island really was, um, dating back hundreds of years. Um there was a priest on the island in the 1930s whose car had broken down on the peat moss. And there's a corner that we call the million-dollar hole even today because no matter how many times they continue building up the road, it always sinks in the same corner where he was killed uh, when his tire had blown out. He had got out and was changing it, and a car had come whipping around a corner, struck him and killed him right on that corner. And ever since then, that stretch of road has been particularly haunted. Now, when I was uh, I was 11 years old, and um, once a week, my parents and I would bundle my brother up in the car uh, when they would come and visit, and we'd drive all the way across the barrens to visit relatives that were in the harbor. And we'd hang out there, play Nintendo. I was there uh, when I was younger. I watched the night that Michael Jackson's thriller aired up there, which was kind of cool. But there's um, a moment of peace that you only have when you're young, when your parents are driving back from someplace late at night and you have the rhythm of the car and your parents are talking low and you know you've got a coat or a blanket over you and you're just so 
calm and safe feeling. You only really find that when you're, you're coming back from a family engagement late at night. As we were crossing the barrens, my mother commented that there was somebody behind us. And we could see the reflection of the lights shining off the mirror. And it would get brighter and brighter. And then the car would back off and then get brighter and brighter and then back off. And uh, at one point, as we were maybe the midway point of the barrens, you could hear the revving of the engine and it came charging up out of nowhere. By this time, I was awake and looking back at it. It got so close to it that I could see the shape of the car, that it was an older car. And <clears throat> it still scares me to this day. Then the car backed off again. Well, when my parents finally got to the peninsula, my dad pulled off to the side and was waiting to see who the hell it was. And the car was gone. So he turned around and booked it back down across the peat moss. There was no sign of the car at all. But similar incidents had happened to a lot of people in the peninsula. What makes it so specific is there is no turning off that road. There are huge ditches on either side. There's no side roads. There's no cutoffs. It's just a stretch of nothingness as far as the eye can see. So there's nowhere for a car to go. Otherwise, getting to the peninsula or getting back to the center. But that... Uh, that was definitely one of the scarier things that I had ever seen. Um, I had nightmares about that for quite a long time afterward. Jeez. I mean, even, even your mother saying it and your dad saying it like that, you know, cause mostly I thought, I thought where I thought you were going with this as I thought you were like, yeah, I saw the guy standing on the side of the road. I was like, no. Okay. No, you, you took it, you took it in a whole different direction. Yeah. Um, now, do you, what if, if, okay, so say, um, you say I said, I told this, right? And you were a skeptic. What did you think in your head? Like in, in this day right now, today, as we're talking, do you, have you ever tried to rationally explain it away? I've tried, but I keep coming back to the fact, um, there's nowhere for it to go. Um, coupled by the fact that in a few instances where people in the peninsula had threatened the last house that's in the center before the start of our road, um, the police had interviewed the people that were there that are always sitting out on their porch and no one had ever gone down the road to the car when some of these incidents. And I, I mean, there's no trees, there's, there's, there's nowhere for it to go to. There's no turnoff. So the only thing that it keeps coming back to is the facts of it's not like there's, you know, a disgruntled somebody or kids messing around or, you know, they, they came down this cutoff road or had a car hid in the woods and there's nothing. When you picture the barons, if you ever look at uh, barons in uh, Canada or even Europe, it's kind of like Scotland. That there's no trees. There's, there's nothing to hide behind. There's just nothingness. So you, you can't really conceal anything? Hmm. Yeah, because I, I you know, I tried to think about it too. I'm like, how could how could that have worked? But you're right. 
And now, now when you say when you saw the car, did it look? And, and more importantly, why? Why would somebody decade? Right. Um, it, it finally stopped after the road was paved. Um, in the late 1980s, uh, the road was paved, and they even had a priest that had blessed the road when they had paved it because it used to be all dirt. And after that, all of the stuff had stopped. Now, when you saw the car, was it like an actual car? Like, did it look like maybe it was, um, how do I, like, like it was almost like kind of like ethereal, like it was kind of invisible or was it like a solid? No, no, it was a solid shape, but it was very dark. And part of the problem was the lights were right in my face, but you could still see the outline of the car and it wasn't modern. Um, <laughs> Lord knows that cars in the 80s were not elegant in design at all. They were all kind of boxy and hideous. This was uh, an older, more more curved and shapely car, like the ones from the 1930s and 40s were, where they were more coupe style with more of a rounded body. That's what this one was. The headlights were also low, uh, mounted on fenders like the old cars used to be. Um, what's another one? Give us another one. The other one, I guess, is uh, a little more closer to home. My uh, my great grandmother and I were very close when I was little. Um, she and I would go on adventure playing when we were little, and I didn't realize at the time that she was suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia, and so. A lot of our childlike adventures to me were just her playing when it's kind of the state of mind she was in. When I was uh, 10 years old, they finally had to put her in a nursing home and uh, assisted living facility, which kind of broke me. When you're that young going into a nursing home every weekend just to, to see her, and then you see how people are uh, just kind of left and waiting. It left a real impression on me that I think helped to shape a lot of my interest in, in in darker things or questioning who we are or what we're about. The human condition mm -hmm. is. When she finally had started to go, I was 16, and uh, she was in the hospital completely just out of touch with reality at that point she she was pretty much vegetative um which is pretty much the the end result of of advanced alzheimer's and we we waited and waited by the hospital bed finally um i, I couldn't take it i had been there for four days and hadn't gone home at all the family members were talking about pulling the plug uh and just letting her go which to me, um, she wasn't letting go on her own, so I had a problem with it. So uh, finally, um, I decided to leave, and uh, I, I gave her a kiss on the forehead, and she mumbled, I love you, which uh, kind of struck me and everybody else in the room because at that point she hadn't talked in four years so her being able to say something was just kind of jarring to make you feel like there was somebody still in there. 
I had got home maybe 15 minutes later and before they even had a chance to do something, she had gone on her own as if she was waiting for me to leave. Um, the story doesn't quite end up there. I had a dream that night and she was standing in the hallway in front of her room and she was pointing at the room number, which was 333. And when I woke up, my dad was obsessed with two things growing up, uh, vintage 100 cigarettes and the lottery. He played the lottery every day. A lot of times we'd, we'd go without uh, cable or have utility shut off so he could have both of those things. I suggested uh, on the day of her funeral that we play those numbers, 3330 and then 0333. And with everything going on, he forgot to do it. Of course, the number that hit that evening was 0333, which to me was kind of a missed opportunity because it was almost like one last gift. The statistics of, of that happening, I, I can't even begin to fathom. But I had taken um, a carnation off the top of her casket and brought it home. I didn't put it in water. I just set it on my desk for two and a half weeks. The thing didn't wilt at all. It was perfectly preserved. Um, almost like, like there was a, a piece of her there or energy feeling or whatever it was. Finally, I, I woke up one morning and it was wilted and it was almost like staying around to make sure that people are okay before finally letting go. Whew. Man, I got, uh, I don't know what to say to that. I don't, I don't know what to say to that. Like that's, uh, that's really interesting actually. You know, I mean, most people, when I say, uh, when I ask folks, you know, what's your, what's your paranormal experience? It's always something frightening. You know, it's always something like, I don't know, like one of our guests, uh, they were practicing Ouija boards and a thing broke, like a whole board just broke over their head. So stuff like that. And I've had, uh, I mean, I've had weird stuff like that happen. Those are two of the, I mean, I, I experimented a lot with lucid dreaming when uh, I was in my teenage years. Um really being able to, to take control of dreams. And the house that we had lived in when I was a teenager, the guy had fallen off the roof like uh, I think it was 10 or 15 years before we had we'd even got the house, had fallen off the roof and died. And when I was lucid dreaming, I kept hearing this knocking on a door. Every No matter what I could do in the dream, I got my point where I could actually control most of my dreams. I would always look for a street sign called Phillips, which was the the street that we had lived on in the, when I was uh, when I was a kid. That was the house that I was born in. Mm. So I would always look for that street sign. It would always be in the dream. Once I saw it, then I would realize I was dreaming and being able to take control. But no matter what I did, um, I started everywhere I went. There would be a door somewhere, and there was knocking on it. And then finally, in one dream, I went and opened the door, and it was just this black 
void. And I could hear something running towards me, echoing out of that void. And I, I woke up at the last minute. After that, immediately after, there was this huge thud on the roof above me and a roll down the side. We had uh, like a slanted roof. Uh, so my bed and the bunk bed, the slant of the roof was right above me. I could hear someone rolling off the top of it and then falling and screaming. And it would happen a few times a week. It would repeat over and over again. Prior to that, we'd never had anything happen. So it's almost like I I opened a literal door without <laughs> intending to, inviting something in or charging it up or, or whatever. Now, how did you... How did you go about lucid dreaming at, a, at as a teenager? Because I can never figure out how to do it very well. Meditation helps considerably in being able to get you to focus on your mind and your presence of place, being able to to drown out distractions, to be able to focus on a particular thing. Um, for me, it was in visualizing street sign. So even when I was meditating and still awake, um, I would I would focus on that street sign, what it used to look like, the shape of the letters, and would really focus on bringing that into full vision in my mind. So when I would dream, I would try and, and focus on that image before falling asleep, let myself fall asleep, and then look for that in the dream, um, subconsciously, where you're not actively, you know, uh, oh, God, someone's chasing me. I'm going to go outside and look at the street sign. It would just kind of appear on its own um, and interrupt whatever the course of events were happening. Now, do you still lucid dream to this day or no? I haven't in a long time, no. Hmm. Because I hear I hear a lot about it. I hear people talk about it. Um, I myself have tried to, but I just can't seem to get it down. Um, and that might be because, you know, my brain's kind of everywhere at once, as we've seen with this conversation. I think it's it gets harder the older you get, because it is very difficult to be a responsible adult <laughs> and be also able to give yourself the kind of clarity of mind and free thought and stress-free existence in order to dedicate time into really cultivating meditation or lucid dreaming or any of those kind of things, or even allow yourself to be open enough to, to feel things or recognize opportunities. Sometimes they still happen, even if, if you don't intend, where you would just have a perfect day or something falls into place or someone you've wanted to talk to that you were thinking about just happens to call you or the universe just kind of lines up. But a lot of times those become fewer and far in between the older we get and the more distracted we get. And that's a good, uh, and that's a good place to end it today, folks. Um, I want to thank my guest, Kenny Vigu for coming on the show again, or coming on this show. He was on the other show previous. Um, it's always fantastic to hear his points of view and the things he's went through in his life. You can check him out at the Chad a Fallout 76 story. Um, and hit us with that link. Yeah, it's fallout76podcast.com. 
And you'll also, uh, in episode four, you'll also hear your own Robert Solomon as the voice of uh, the high priest in our Mothman cult. <laughs> but I'm not in an actual cult, folks, so don't you know run out. No, no. I know it. I know it. No, this one's more of a funny cult. He's, yes. he's gathering light bulbs. <laughs> it's not the cult where I'm going to make you do bad things. Well, he's gathering know. light bulbs, not your children. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, and we do have some some really cool stuff coming up for you folks, so definitely check that out. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before we jump off of here, Kenny? Nothing I can think of, no. It's, been, pretty... uh, it's been fantastic dishing with you again. Yeah, well, it's a random time... conversation that's that's gone everywhere from uh, the Kirkbride Asylum to uh, Thundercats, and... <laughs> the Transformers, and, Transformers. and Silent Hill, and Ghosts, um, Twilight Zone. But you know, it's it's. I think when the two of us get together and we have a conversation, we're so passionate about the things we talk about. It's really easy to kind of go askew on a topic you know and just this is more of a scenic road trip uh with no map than it is maybe a linear destination (laughs) (laughs) well folks as always um i am your host robert solomon for this uncanny earth you can also pick up shirts we have shirts now so if you are a member of this uncanny earth facebook group you can definitely click on the link there to get it um, they are 10 bucks, free shipping, unless you want it expedited uh, or you want it shipped out of the country. Then just PM me, get with me. Um, I ship them out personally, so if you want one, just kind of uh, let me know and then you know shoot me the address. And those are available now. And we have small, medium, large, extra large, and 2XL. So pick those up, folks. And as always, why be boring when you can be uncanny? Good night. Good night.